Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. So, me and my roommates finally rewatched Cars because I feel like we've talked enough about Cars, the the Pixar film. Mm-hmm. We, we we've talked enough about Cars at the museum that I really did right. need to refresh my memory on it. And of course, it did not answer as many questions as I thought it was going to, and in fact, just left me with more questions. Uh, You know the the part where Lightning McQueen goes into the garage and he sees the old newspaper clipping? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah. How, one, how do cars type to, uh, how can cars set a letterpress? Because, you know, if this is happening, you know, way back in the day, I assume they have some sort of letterpress to make a newspaper. And then how Mm -hmm. would the cars hold the newspaper? so it just that's a good point (laughs) (laughs) so yeah this um i gotta say maybe if i watch cars a couple more times it'll finally start Mm -hmm. making sense this really is going to become the bane of my existence is to fully dissect cars and it's gonna wait hold on (laughs) (laughs) the movie No, I think if we're being honest, we do need to dissect one of those cars because we need to find out. We need to find out what's inside them. We got to know. It's important. Wouldn't tablets be the more practical way of viewing news for cars or like? Yeah, because Lightning McQueen, like he answers a phone that's basically, you know, a a computer. Um, Right. But you would have to assume that their technology progressed to that point because, you know, they show black and white photography. They show that there are some cars that are older models that are older, Mm -hmm. like the Hudson Hornet. Um, So what, what is the progression of technology that led to them having those computers? Did they have analog technology at one point? This is the question. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh my gosh, it's really, yeah. really makes you wonder what's going to happen afterwards, right? Yeah, yeah. I just, you know, I guess we'll just have to wait for Cars 4. Did they make a Cars 4? I don't remember. N- n- no, they made Cars 3. Yeah. Just oh, 3, okay. and that was it. Just 3. Yeah. And, it, and guess what? Did mm. we get any answers? No. <laughs> just more confusion. I mean, the continuation of the Cars universe, like, you know, this is going back a bit to our exhibit on coding, but it also falls into one of the traps that I find very annoying about coding, where English accent means smart, Southern accent mm. means dumb. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes. Ugh. It's like, look, I know some dumb British people. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> and I know some very smart people from the South. Very true. It's yeah. Fair. But you know, it is the, those are those are ways that we try to tell things about about people, or mm-hmm. in this case, cars. 
I mean, I'm having the same question in Battlestar Galactica where everyone speaks English, everyone has American accents, except for Gaius. He's English because he's the scientist and he's always mm. very befuddled and he's very smart. Yeah, that just sounds like some continuity issues. Yeah, language like, and, and he's, sci-fi. From, he's from the British part of their colony planet. Of course. Well, like, <laughs> you know, it's always just assumed that English is going to be the number one language used. And I think it's because in sci-fi, like, it's what audience that's kind of being shown you, you need to? You need a lingua franca. Like, you know, Game of Thrones mm. does that. They call it the common mm-hmm. tongue, but they establish exactly. that there's, you know, other languages and whatnot. Yeah, I always had issues um, with shows or movies that don't do that because it takes me right out of it. Yeah. The only one that pulled that off was Chernobyl. Well, yeah, because all of the text and everything is still Russian script. Yeah. Um, and you're sort of... The internal logic of that show is that these people with a, with very... What read to us is very upper-crust English accents are the people with money and people mm-hmm. with British accents that are more working class, you know, Scottish and Irish are the people working in the mines. You know, that right, sort of, right. it grafts kind of onto our own cultural understanding in a way that I don't think as Americans we would be, a, or, you know, I mean, also for a British audience, uh, you would not be able to differentiate Russian accents probably. Yeah, I think that would be difficult for but, I mean, a primarily English what, what's more, audience. What's more? What's more? The cars also have a statue. The cars have evolved at least past the point of monumental architecture mm-hmm. and also uh, just monuments in general. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Like, that's, that's a big part oh. of the first one is that Lightning McQueen, you know, uh, basically destroys um, a public artwork. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, I forgot about that whole part of the movie. Welcome to Cars Talk. We don't talk about cars. <laughs> uh, but we, t- we do talk, we try to talk about very interesting, deep subjects, but inevitably always end up talking about Disney Pixar's cars. It's true, it's true. Well, I mean, speaking of, you know, post-human and anthropocentric ideas, mm-hmm. what do you think of this exhibit that we're in right now? Um. Well, you know, I... I wouldn't immediately know it was an exhibit, I guess. Yeah, I know. I mean, it kind of feels like we're outside. And don't, don't these, uh, these trees look kind of familiar to you? The, mm-hmm. um, the birch trees and pine trees that are kind of in the distance and all the leaves on the ground changing color, of course. A little bit, yeah. You know, this really does seem to reflect the world around me mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. That, that I might see, you know, strolling through a park. Well, actually, it's our um, landscape from out front. Oh, what? Yeah. Oh, I thought it's Yeah. I, I, I did I did feel a little it did feel a little redundant this morning walking in. Yeah, it's almost like you're kind of cutting through this whole different pathway. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is our, our one day only um exhibit that's inspired from the work of Roman Ondak, in which he exhibited a similar work in the two thousand nine Venice Biennale. Can we afford that for one day? I mean, we're really we're really maxing out this budget here. Mm, okay. Yeah. I'm, I assume but, it'll be in the next uh, budget meeting. 
Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I, I tried to pull some strings to get this one in here, and I mean, that's unfortunately why we can't have. The... I guess one day is one day is better than no days. That is true. That is true. It's it's for the experience. It's okay. A, it's a once in a lifetime experience. Mm -hmm. For that work in particular, you know, he took the outside of the Slovakian pavilion, mm -hmm. all the landscape and the fauna, and, and you've been there with me. You know what mm -hmm. that kind of looks like. All the different, you know, shrubs and bushes all around, and flowers and whatnot. So basically, he took all of that from the outside and brought it into the gallery space, mm -hmm. just like we're kind of seeing here. And so it created this almost like alternate dimension where mm -hmm. people would come in from the outside and go right back into where they were coming from. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people kind of were confused about it to a certain extent because if you, you know, it was treated almost like a tunnel where somebody would go in and they would kind of you know, look at all the nice nature and everything else and just go right back out. Because it's this question of where's the art, right? So it right. wasn't even, for a lot of people, it wasn't really viewed as the artwork. But that was, the art itself was this installation, this taking the time to kind of flow down and, and look at nature and kind of sit with that. Mm -hmm. Because of bringing what's outside on the inside and, and making it an important talking piece, especially due to, you know, topics of the environment, deforestation, all kinds of things like that. And so I thought it would be an interesting kind of thing to bring to our Uncanny County Museum here to have an interesting discussion on how artwork is exhibited in public spaces versus the museum mm -hmm. or even just the gallery space. Yeah. Um, you know, the thing that I think separates that, that kind of important distinction usually for public art is that it almost there almost has to be an element of you stumbling upon it mm -hmm. that you know you go to a museum to see artwork on the walls or in an exhibition space or you know projected on video um on a video screen um right and then public art art that is intended for the public for you to pass every day that sort of intrudes in on what your expected experience is um and sort of the soft power of that of of that um presence in your experience like that to me i think you know because there's definitely art that you know is consumed by lots of people um mm -hmm you know, that is not a totally individual experience, like, you know, one person at a time standing in front of a painting, like, you know, you have literature, right? Because, you know, you don't accidentally read a book. No, <laughs> no, no, you don't, you don't uh, take a turn into a public square. And then, you know, suddenly, there's, you know, just a book that you immediately consume. Yeah, that, that this would kind of separate it from like something like a concert or literature yes. or a movie, something that is sort of made for a lot of people to experience at once. Mm -hmm. Public art is almost kind of, I feel like there has to be almost an element of it being, of it feeling accidental when you stumble upon it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting take on certain things. And, and clearly this has been going on for a while. This isn't necessarily something new, but it's being used a lot in the contemporary sphere of thinking in terms of artistic practices and research and also just making. Yeah. Because to me, to me what's interesting is it's availability. Mm -hmm. 
is that it's not something where you have to buy a ticket. And, and okay, so some of them are, right? There are some fancy things that people discuss as public art, whether it be like hammocks or light installations, things yeah. like that, where they kind of, it's more gimmicky. And mm-hmm. I think removing that aspect of the conversation, mm-hmm. a lot of these works are something that just exists in nature. They're just there. Yeah. And so it removes this kind of concept of having to buy a ticket, having a person limit, you know, having to wait in line. You know, you could just go and, mm-hmm. you're, and you're kind of seeing it. I don't know. There's just something fascinating with that and kind of ancient, but yeah. not necessarily so imperial, you know? Because, like, I think if, like, when we were in Italy, you know, you turn the corner, there's a church or there's a mat- monument or a statue. There's, almost, there's a statue of one of the Medici's somewhere. Exactly. And, and there's something so kind of inspiring about that of this availability of artwork and, and sort mm-hmm. of bringing up this city um, or this town or wherever it may be. But at the same time, what happens when you take it and you make it something that's not, it, not necessarily human or organic? It could be something that's just there, just an object that's in this space and it just kind of harbors this area or literally just taking the fauna from outside and bringing it on the inside. And now this is an experience that but can have. Okay, but in, in the case of that, where you're, you know, um, bringing the natural inside, which, you mm-hmm. know, we would consider the, the man-made uh, space versus the natural space, I think that is part of the illusion of, you know, public art, is you want it yeah. to seem natural, but it is very deliberately a choice. If you want to look yes. at something like, Central Park in New York, which you mm-hmm. could kind of look at as a public artwork. It was very True. thoughtfully designed. You know, that yeah. the idea was that every turn would be a new visual experience. You know, it was modeled mm-hmm. after, you know, specific uh, historical uh, and natural kind of inspirations. And, you know, a lot of ideals went into that, you know, and it being in, you know, being on Manhattan and being, you know, uh, also a part of uh, the colonial land grab. Yeah. You know, and uh, the, uh, the, the expulsion of uh, indigenous and, you know, a lot of black Americans from that region to build that park. But mm-hmm. it does tell a certain story and it is presented as this natural landscape. Yeah, and it is quite literally bringing the natural into the unnatural, right? Yeah, it's it's this it is a the slice of green in the middle <laughs> of Manhattan. Yeah, and and it's kind of funny too cuz that's it's it's you know, air source, it's it's life essence if you will too because yeah. it's the thing that kind of brings in the oxygen for everybody that lives there. <laughs> it's an interesting kind of take on it and it's an interesting thing to really sit with and think about too, how, you know, we as humans interact with nature mm-hmm. and make points about it. Because I know, I know we've had a few conversations about environmental art yeah. and how it can go so bad so quick. Right. Um, and I think that happens because it's always trying to make the work about something like in, in this case, the environment that in, in a way where it's more two-dimensional, whether it be painting or, or uh, I don't know, a, a video or something that's so literal, you know, plants are dying, yeah. so we're going to show plants dying or yeah. 
there's deforestation, that, so I'm going to take a picture. That, that literal aspect is sort of the struggle that monuments and public art face right now, that mm-hmm. a lot of people, I think, voice their opinions about how much they don't like contemporary sculpture, or what they yes. think contemporary sculpture <laughs> is. You know, I think they, yeah. they think of abstract expressionist stuff you know, modernist stuff, a lot of, you know, minimalist sculpture, which Mm -hmm. minimalist sculpture is so interesting, but there is just that little sliver of intellectual elitism that, like, you have to have read a couple of things to get minimalist sculpture. That doesn't mean that there isn't something there to get. There are Mm -hmm. very, very interesting ideas going on there, but... You know, if someone were to, you know, turn a corner in, you know, their in their city square and they see, you know, a monolithic, you know, a monolithic Russian minimalist sculpture, (laughs) it would look like a misplaced piece of concrete that, you know, was meant to go to something else. Well, because for those two, you know, they they were taking it out of, of the context it was originally in and placing it in the gallery space. Right. You know, so like Dan Flavin's like uh, fluorescent tubes and just putting them in the corners of the gallery. And yeah. And making this entirely different experience. Mm-hmm. But if we were to show that as a sculpture it is in, you know, the middle of New York City, it wouldn't really work. Right. Because it would just be so. Yeah. You would just think that somebody left this thing here. Yeah, but there's because there is that lack of context, you're kind of left yes. with projecting what you know about the artist onto that thing. I think a good example exactly. of that is, you know, uh, Cloudgate, better known as the Bean in mm-hmm. Chicago, which, you know, that's that's a very iconic and I think pretty well liked sculpture in general it's pretty you know unobtrusive not super controversial if it is controversial it's because people you know think Anish Kapoor is a dick <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know Fair enough. their their judgment like I it's hard for me to like not be snarky even though you know he does have interesting work it's hard for me to not be snarky about Damien Hirst's work because of you yeah. know Whenever we do hear things about him as a person, you know, he does, you know, not sound like the best. Yeah. Well, it's that superstar, you know, celebrity artist yeah, personality. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But, but with, with so little, with so little to go on, you see the bean and you think what type of pretentious, <laughs> uh, you know, waste of public funds is this? Yeah. I mean, that's very true. I don't really, I don't know. I've seen it. I've been to Chicago a few times and it Mm -hmm. was, I didn't really, I don't know. I mean, I was young, so I don't think I looked at that and thought, oh no, this is a monument created by this artist and there's a reason for it. I kind of Mm -hmm. was just like, oh, it's a weird bean and it's reflective. Yeah. Fun. And you know, that's just, and and I think there's something. It is fun and people interact with it, which I think is the, the overlooked really kind of nice thing about it is it is an engaging piece of public mm-hmm. artwork. I was just reading um, this older interview with the artist Christian Batansky mm-hmm. where he was kind of discussing his opinions on his, his artwork and installing it in the museum and, or in the, in the gallery space versus um, a more public space or a more, I guess, like environmental area. Okay. And so, because like he's working with a lot of the, the kind of guilt that comes with different events and specifically the Holocaust because 
his parents were involved in that. And I think it was his father that had to escape. And I forget exactly where they moved to, but he was kind of discussing how he's working a lot of with this like guilt and this remembrance. Mm -hmm. It's a very big topic for him, but he doesn't really like to install things in galleries or museums really as much Mm -hmm. um, in terms of when this was written. And he was kind of talking about how that can really turn people off. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, I think he was talking about doing an installation with these the tin cans. Yeah. In um, it had to be somewhere in Switzerland, I'm pretty sure, because it was talking about the, the remembering the Swiss people who died in a certain event. And the thing he was talking about was when somebody approached him and asked what you were doing, he said he's making a monument to remember the Swiss people who have died. Mm-hmm. And was kind of very candid and blunt about it, but, mm-hmm. you know, conversational. And he he was saying that the public found that to be a bit more approachable because they know what he's talking about and they can read it and they can understand. Right. But as you know, he was saying like, as soon as if, if he would have, if he would have said, Oh, well, I'm a contemporary painter coming from the, you know, museum, the contemporary art museum over there. And I'm doing a work on this. It mm-hmm. immediately shuts the conversation down because there's a pretentious yeah. attitude that I am this person who has no you know connection to your culture. And I'm going to sit here and, and make a painting about it. Right. versus making a very quiet and personal monument you know, in, of something that happened and not making it literal. Yeah. I can't, I can't particularly remember the work, but I know he works a lot with these kind of like tin cookie cans mm-hmm. and he uses them a lot as like bricks and just piles them up. Right, right. But I think there's something in that that's interesting that you know, approaching people in a certain way is important and also how you carry yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um the, you know, as we sort of have this, uh, you know, as we had uh, in Indigenous Peoples Day not too long ago, you know, sort of our American replacement of uh, mm-hmm. Columbus Day, you know, as we, you know, try to remove Confederate monuments, remove statues of Columbus um and there's the question of what do we do with these things so that we because i think it is important to remember and to remember them in the right context you know you and me were in a class together where you know our professor who you know her she herself was you know from italy she's european um knows an enormous amount about history but sort of like presented us with like how kind of Eastern European countries deal with, you know, like statues of Stalin, you know, sort of putting them in monument parks and that they're, uh, you know, that if you were to do a park in the United States with a bunch of Confederate generals, that would not uh, neutralize them in no. a way that I think she is imagining. Yeah, I remember that discussion. That was, that mm-hmm. was complicated. I always kind of frame that when, I, when I'm explaining the topic of Confederate monuments and, mm-hmm. and how to remove them as... It's like, you know, you're talking with people who all agree with you. Yeah. But it's just a matter of how to do something. Yeah, the, yeah. the Soviet monument graveyards are... They were... They're good in intention and thought, mm-hmm. but they still, it was like, I remember they kind of still bleed out. Like mm-hmm. they're still there and they become something else because yeah. it's like, you're, you're basically making a monument park. And yeah. here in the U.S., that is a very different concept and context. Well, because we have the National Mall. 
Exactly. You know, you, we, you think we, of a, yeah, it's a different it's a different precedent for having mm-hmm. monuments and for having the pedestal itself. I mean, the right the pedestal itself has power that the the statue is literally standing above you, standing mm-hmm. higher than you. And this is something that you literally look up to, you know, as we yes. if we want to really literally read these monuments. <laughs> um yeah (laughs) so you know you are looking up to columbus or Mm -hmm. you know stonewall or something you know yeah the the sort of american problem with with this is you know one our kind kind of how recent a lot of our history is uh compared to you know some other places where you know it's like okay there was this one building erected by a fascist but it's also you know attached to this other building built by a monarch from centuries ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a little bit intertangled. With the American question about it, that's, you know, that I think is why you have to put a lot of it into the museological context is realizing that so much of this stuff was put up in the 20s. Like, yeah, so much of, so many of those Confederate monuments were put up when there was a resurgence of interest in the KKK in the 20s. And, you know, it's not like they put up this stuff to, like, to honor our fallen brethren, like, and they put it up in the 1860s, you know, like, right after the war was over. This was a revisionism done within the Mm -hmm. 20th century, within, you know, to some extent, still within living memory. 100%. Yeah, it's that... Like you realize Columbus Day isn't even that old of a holiday. <laughs> it's not. It's invented by the person who wrote Sleepy Hollow. It's literally a, a fictional story that's kind of crafted in a way to give the Italians a national holiday and an identity. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's something I was complaining with my parents about because I'm so beyond frustrated with this attachment that Italians have, American Italians specifically have to Columbus. You know, there's like so many other people that you can look up to as yeah. an Italian that oh, are yeah. important in history and not horrible, mm-hmm. right? You know, it, it's just like, I don't get the fascination and I don't get why it's so important. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, it's a cultural desperation mm-hmm. because it's like, we don't want to, I don't know, acknowledge the bad parts of it because then that makes our identity in the U.S. kind of fraughtful. It's just, you know, back to where I guess it was before Italians were included? Well, okay, but I mean, a lot of Italians came to America, you know, out of desperation. Yeah, you know, for sure. And, you know, it is nice to be a part of that American story, but if you are a part of that American story, you know, and you are European, mm-hmm. you are a part of a story of, uh, you know, perpetrators of a genocide, and... Yeah you are inserting yourself into that narrative, which is, you know, something you have to, uh, <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't just take the glorious parts. You got to kind of own no. all of it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, it's kind of frustrating because I think too, as you know, an Italian American and kind of growing up, learning about the age of exploration, you get kind of excited whenever mm-hmm. somebody talks about like, Oh, well, Amerigo Vespucci, you know, he's Italian, discovers this part of America, and that's where the name comes from, and that, that, you know, they tell you this whole stories, and you're like, oh, that's my culture, like, that's exciting, and you get that, you get that bit of a boost, that Mm -hmm. cultural 
bum. Because what else did I have? To, you know, do you have to look at? You have Jersey Shore. Um, <laughs> sometimes you know different chefs. Um, Boyardi. Exactly. Yeah. Sopranos. Yeah. <laughs> the Sopranos. Yeah. No, The Sopranos. Um, gangster movies in particular, like yeah. The Godfather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe this is just me. Maybe this is what I'm looking <laughs> at. But I feel like this is a collective memory of, of people growing up Italian American in in the Northeast and watching you know, Goodfellas, the Godfather trilogy, the Sopranos. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's your role models. Right. That's, that's who you're looking at culturally. And it's just like, yeah, ugh, I don't so, know. So th- this is a bit of a roundabout story, but you know, my, <laughs> um, my roommates and I, you know, we have like TV channels for the first time in a while. You know, we got oh, one wow. of those like, little panels that you like stick to your window so that you get TV channels. Um, oh wow okay so like we're flipping through and you know we go i you know it's like tv land or whatever and they're playing <laughs> yeah you know, episodes of the monsters oh wow and i was okay. trying That's and i was one. like i was like why do i know the act i mean i know the i i'm just because of like cultural reasons like i've heard of herman munster but i'm like hearing him mm-hmm. talk and i'm like why do i know that voice why do i know who that is so i look it up and he, it, that actor was the judge in My Cousin Vinny. So then. What? Yes. Yes. So oh my God. being a very different character. <laughs> yes. So me and my roommates are like, let's watch My Cousin Vinny. Oh, it's bold. Yeah. And then we watched it. And, you know, first of all, it's great. It's a, it's a great movie. The, For sure. The interesting thing is to me, though. You know, uh, you know, you're watching it, you're, you know, you're joking about, you know, the Seinfeld episode <laughs> where George is in love with Marissa Tomei, you know, yeah. Joe Pesci is, you know, just he, he's he really makes you realize he is a great comedic actor. Like he's, he's a funny guy. He has <laughs> Joe Pesci has a range that, you know, I think that is overlooked. But anyways, you know, yeah, for sure. And and you realize like that um karate kid, uh, what's his name? Machio, uh, uh Ralph Machio. Ralph Machio is not in the movie very much. No. And like what a big name star he was and like that he's barely in the movie. Anyways, <laughs> but you know, the movie has all these people in it and they very much are presenting on one hand they're presenting um a post-racial south. Mm. Because it's a lo- like you know when they first get pulled over and stuff and you know they're talking to um uh the the kid's mom on the phone you know and they're talking about how like like you know it's it's played for laughs that the uh the cops are like you know all secretly kkk members you know mm-hmm. and yeah it it is totally played for laughs. Like, look at these snooty uh northeastern Americans looking down on this on this little rural community. Um right. and like, you know, they you know, it's a reverse shot basically, where the the one kid is like, you know, like there are a bunch of, you know, cops in the clan down here. You gotta come help us. And like, you know, then it's a reverse shot to all the police officers looking at them and some of them are black. And it's like, it's such a, you know, thing that's meant to communicate, you know, a clash of cultures. And the weird thing mm. about that is it's presenting, 
it's presenting the prejudice of the Southerners is against Italians. Yeah. Like that is uh-huh. that is the persecuted minority in this uh in Wazoo, Alabama. so when marissa tomei and joe pesci and ralph macchio show up you know and ralph macchio's uh jewish roommate like which also they were going to ucla but going there from a tri-state area via alabama to get to california i mean um Okay. I, I don't I don't I'm I'm confused on the geography. <laughs> yeah. I'm confused. I don't really get how that one worked, but hey. Yeah, whatever. I think they say something about like they wanted to like see the seasons change or something, but I don't know. What? Yeah. Anyways, right, but but just just the <laughs> you know, there is that desire for, you know, to see Italians vindicated in American media that you yeah. know, they went from being, you know, kind of a uh, the the subject of of prejudice themselves to kind of being absorbed into the construct of whiteness that this this movie yeah. you know t- sort of exists outside of <laughs> yeah it's no it's true it's an interesting kind of observation with that too and I feel like yeah. I think it's gonna take time to be honest for mm-hmm. Italians to kind of come around I'm so generalizing right now. But at the same time, I thought, time, you, were, I thought like, you were going. I, yeah, I mean, I, I thought you were about to say it's going to take so long for Italians to be fully accepted. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think they're fine. I think I'm gonna speak for the Italian when people. When will we and have say, an Italian okay. president? Do you remember when people made that a big deal though about the president being Catholic? I mean, I do not remember. I mean, it I'm, myself, I'm not. From, I, but, yeah, but, it's like I guess I'm not. Yeah. You know, seventy years old. <laughs> But, but yes, like, but yes, oh God, you know, there, I know bizarre. there was great fear in having an Irish Catholic. President. Yeah, totally, totally different conversation and aside from what we're discussing here. But you know, it is, I mean, I think JFK uh, threw the scent off of anti-Catholic people just by, you know, committing every sin <laughs> that was humanly possible. <laughs> All right. Yeah. No one's going to think I'm taking orders from the Pope if I screw every woman. And do a bunch of drugs. I mean, he, he was he was he was injured he, uh, very badly in World War Two. Don't want to make light yeah. of that, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, I. Uh, it's. I, yeah, I don't know. I think it's it's interesting to, in terms of looking at what we were discussing with like the Columbus statues and this need yeah. for like an icon. But you know you you. If you look at, um, like right here, one of a a great example of kind of, you know, making fun of, you know, putting anything on a pedestal because so much of minimalist sculpture deliberately is on the floor. Yeah. Trying to remove the pedestal. It is trying to democratize the art. It is trying to put you as a person on the same level mm-hmm. as the art you know um yes but then if you look at uh piero manzoni's uh base of the world uh you know that he made mm. in 1961 you'll see that it is upside down yeah and that's such a brilliant gesture as art 
and it's also really funny you know yes. because you're trying to imagine that this little tiny uh cube of metal is supporting the world you know because mm-hmm. you, you that that's that's the hilarious thing about it that you could literally put the world on a pedestal you know the pedestal exactly. doesn't have to be bigger than it <laughs> exactly exactly it's like that atlas holding up the holding up the earth oh absolutely it's, yeah it's interesting too in terms of the context of art de povera because mm-hmm. that i think goes on to inspire a lot of for sure, European mm-hmm. contemporary uh, sculpture and installation. You but- know, the, the the weird thing is being back in the states now. Like you know, mm-hmm. now that I'm you know no longer taking my MFA classes in Italy is uh you know now I'm taking them in Boston. It is, it is funny like having to remind yourself that not everyone knows about Art de Povera and they don't know yeah. in detail as as much about Arte Povera and about Italians reckoning with their history of monumental art and architecture you know it's such a yes. huge part of their culture but also but but its role in colonialism and its role in fascism mm-hmm. yes and how how the, all of that art is just you know about it is the people of Italy that will keep the culture alive um that it that yeah that, that we as italians are are the the culture worthy of uh of monumentalizing that we maintain that monument yeah exactly and into a, of using what you have available yeah arte povera is, is very italian very. in terms of even just how it's made and mm-hmm. its philosophy well yeah the, 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 like that just the material of granite yeah or uh, or of marble mm-hmm. you know the the implications the centuries and millennia that you reference if you even bring that material uh yeah. forward yeah and even just working in terms of the found objects and mm-hmm. materials mm-hmm. and because this is you know for those who kind of don't know on our tour this is a uh, an art movement that's happening in post-war Italy where it's, it's going through one of its major economic recessions because of the war and, you know, half the countryside is bombed out. And so most of the South is moving to the North yeah. because all the industrial jobs are in the North. Yeah, that, that's sort of the, the industrial boom. And I, I think exactly. if, you, if you ask Italians, only Italians and really only Italians from this time period can make Arte Povera. Yeah. Uh, that it, it, there, there's... What they <laughs> they let Canellis in on a technicality, even though he's, yeah, he's Greek somehow. <laughs> yeah, he's, well, I mean, like, cause it it kind of goes. It's not totally just cultural. I think yeah. it does kind of brought up, but I think also if you lived in Italy, if you were living yes. there, and I know Canellis was there a lot, that's kind of how you get absorbed yes. into this. Yeah, but it, it's it's an interesting point that you bring up talking about the pedestal as well, because and and in terms of how Americans look at things. And that kind of striking difference between, you know, going to school in Boston versus um, in Europe. Because I, I was discussing this with a few friends of mine on how few public art installations there are mm-hmm. in the U.S. And I mean, I'm, I'm talking specifically from the East Coast. Mm-hmm. But 
how different that is right? in terms of the Italian contemporary art scene and its integration with people mm-hmm. versus the U.S.'s where it's more corporate and it's more big name, big money. Um, you know, go to a, a weird gallery in New York and experience a ball pit or go right. uh, to Philadelphia and have the lights installation. And maybe mm-hmm. it's for free. Maybe it's not because it totally depends on how but the, the artist views it. Yeah, but the, the public... The public art in that is famous in the northeast of, you know, the United States is what you've got the Wall Street Bull, the Statue of Liberty in mm. New York, and then, you know, uh, you know, some some various uh, statues of founding fathers in Philadelphia. And yeah. and then you have the National Mall. Yeah, I mean. That's kind of it. I mean, I guess we have Storm King, too, up in New York. Right. With the contemporary ones. Yeah. Or not, not even contemporary. It would be, like, more modern. But, but yeah, I mean, that's really it. And that's kind of the ideology surrounding it. It's these big names, big monuments. So when uh, it, it, because there are not that many, the second you make one, it does kind of have to stand on its own. It's, you exactly. know, it's, it's hard to have it as part of a bigger discussion. And when we do add yeah. to those things, it's almost always controversial. Exactly. One thing you brought up earlier was just kind of talking about accidentally finding something. Right. In terms of turning the corner and seeing this public monument or, or work of art that kind of jars you. It, it brings up this point in my head about um, the artist Adrian Villarojas, mm-hmm. who's an, he's an Argentinian-based artist working with kind of found material and sculptural forms, but very much involving um, natural materials. Mm-hmm. And so he was doing these works uh, a while ago in which he would, he, him and a group of people would kind of make these massive sculptures out mm-hmm. of clay. Mm-hmm. And he did one where it's a, it's a huge blue whale, right. completely made out of clay uh-huh. in the forests of Argentina. Argentina. It's, right, it's located right outside um, Ushaya. Argentina mm-hmm. and it's just there so mm-hmm. he builds it out of they build it out of natural materials so it's out of the clay completely make the sculptural form document it for the sake of the portfolio and whatnot and then they leave it mm-hmm. and so the concept is build this this artifact this monument out of natural material let people find it if they find it and then eventually it's just going to biodegrade back into the earth because mm. you're making something out of the earth. So it's, it's kind of intervening yeah. a little bit in the, in the world and just making a mark that doesn't necessarily have but to be so, so industrialized. Yes, exactly. Very, ephemerality is very much yeah. a part of his yeah. work. And, and I'm super, super into it. Well, he, he's yeah, a great I mean, artist. I, I, have, I have a friend who's an artist, uh, Alexander Clinthorne, sometimes goes mm. by uh, Xander Clinthorne. Um, we, uh, yes, and yes, when, you know, we met at MSU, yes, we made a joke about us both being named Zan or Xander and into dinosaurs, <laughs> but he, mm. um, he, his, uh, a lot of his projects for his MFA were basically, um, basically sculpting, uh, kind of abstract, um, forms uh, out of clay, but making them look like fossils, like or oh. kind of resembling fossils. Like he would kind of oh. just squeeze the clay with his fingers and and glaze it to look like vertebrae or skulls, and then just leave them 
out in the woods for someone to stumble upon. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because it's so interesting too. Like, you know, anybody could find it. Mm -hmm. Actually, in in terms of Villa Rojas, they made another kind of whale like um, monument in the middle. I think it was like in the desert or somewhere in like a more open area. Mm -hmm. And they just left it out of the same materials. And people found it and thought it was ancient. Like they thought they discovered a, a, an old monument I mean, from like an ancient yeah. people. That's that's kind of that's kind of the fun discovery of, element yeah. of that. You yeah, know? and I and I don't really think you can find that in a museum space or a gallery space. I think it's something so unique and different mm-hmm. to take art out of its original kind of original context right. and put it somewhere in nature, put it somewhere completely else. And even just it, taking that extra step to make it out of nature mm-hmm. to make it or make it out of natural materials, just like, you know, your, your friend did. And like this artist has both artists, I guess, have how mm-hmm. both artists have, have done that. Yeah. And so it, it's something that to me is very fascinating and it's, it's a huge question right now in terms of, you know, I think, working on my practice and making things and I know you are as well which is kind of really sitting and thinking with this idea of how we show art in public and how do we show things to people and kind of have this broader connection because if art's really just about this social connection and this Mm -hmm. idea of explaining something a, a broad and very complicated philosophical concept and idea through a medium yeah how do you do that in a way that makes it available for everybody if if yeah. you want to. And I personally think it should be for everybody, but mm-hmm. I think things should be available for all to hear yeah. or, or see and feel. But again, that's, yeah. that's a huge question and it's a debate to a certain extent. I but, mean, yeah, for one, I, I wouldn't call it an answer to that question, but one of the, <laughs> uh, one of the routes a lot of people go for public art is to go for, um, I think what they would assume would does not come off either apolitical art or art that is not immediately mm. recognizable as political. Yeah. Like, you know, it's been remarked a lot that one of the reasons why, um, you know, a lot of big uh, corporations are willing to invest in, you know, um, abstract art is because it does not, you know, it seem, it can seem kind of welcoming and does yeah. not always literally challenge you in a way that, you know, yeah. might be um, contrary to what a corporate interest might be. You know, there's, the, yeah, it's the, neutral. There, there's that documentary of uh, Julie Moretu, you know, and her mm. enormous uh, Wall Street paintings. But, you know, you have to watch that and realize that that work is being made pre-2008 recession. Yeah. And, you know, she's talking about, you know, she's talking about a lot of interesting ideas of economics and all this stuff. And, you know, then this work goes up and the crash comes and, you know, Wall Street. I don't think the image of Wall Street has ever recovered from that for good reason. Yeah. And now she has this what represents an enormous investment, you know, and a huge piece of art, you know. Uh, Mm -hmm. that, you know, was made at the request of, you know, essentially the people that threw us into, uh, into, you know, financial recession. Um, but, but this goes back, you know, way 
further to, you know, even like the 30s when Alexander Calder is making stuff. And I I love Calder. And, you know, he was a mm-hmm. deeply political person, was, you know, very uh, anti-Vietnam War. He had so right. many cool ideas and so many experiences. You know, he was born at such an interesting time, lived through so much, created so much interesting art. But, you know, probably his For most sure. popular thing aside from maybe the wire circus stuff that he made was just the invention of the mobile you know oh Um, yeah and you know you think about how many like buildings you've walked into that in some form or another have a mobile just hanging in the lobby or how many how many how many institutions have some form of a mobile you know just the idea of moving abstract art and yeah, for, for the most part, a lot of that stuff is, you know, an ideological descendant of Calder bringing bringing that idea of what, what is essentially a moving abstract painting into the public sphere where it is interesting to look at. It is engaging. Mm-hmm. It makes you feel like you are existing in the same space as the artwork. It lets you look at the world around you and the universe as an artwork, you know, the way that the the mobile, you know, is sort of feels like a miniature solar system. Yeah, but, that's but but it is very appealing and it's, you know, there's money to be made. In yeah, that. that's that's the thing. It is. It, it really does come down to kind of money and spectacle to a certain degree. And I mean, or, or, it's, yeah. it's like um. It's like the Prada Foundation in in Milan. Yeah, where all all of the art is there because it is expensive. Literally, though, I mean, we were just at the. <laughs> we, it, 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 it's oh I'm gosh, it really is up. just a flex. It's I think it's important because it's so funny in terms of the context of where it is. You know, we went to Hangarbikoka, which is yeah this insanely large industrial space that's you know a yeah. part of Artipova and later. It's made out of an old uh, Pirelli tire factory. Yeah, it's it's massive, massive, massive space, and to mm-hmm. fill it is just such a challenge. It represents such such an investment in space and in artwork. Yeah, it is. You know, it is a demonstration of wealth. Yeah, you know, like like you said, for the flex of it. I mean, you have a floor of, you know, coons just because you can. Yes. Yeah. Literally, <laughs> just because you can. That's the kind of I think the philosophy behind that and I mean it, it, it's beautiful they have, literally yeah. have a wall that's gold leaf yes outside and they make <laughs> you not touch it which I think is hilarious that the fact that if you touch this wall someone's going to tell you to stop yeah because it's part of the artwork even though it's architecture that for everybody but whatever I mean but but okay com- <laughs> compare that compare yeah. that to you know Gates of Paradise and Florence where the door to the baptistry mm-hmm. Um, you yeah. know, historically was this incredible, um, low relief gilded, I guess it would have been gilded gold. Um, uh, yeah. Low relief of biblical scenes, just absolutely amazing feat of, uh, engineering and artwork. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then the, just from people touching it from opening the doors over years and years and years, uh, the gold, you know, started to come off. So they took them off, put them inside the museum next to the Duomo in Florence, and mm-hmm. now they have the replacement ones out there, the, you know, the... Uh, yeah. And, 
you know, I understand the intent is to preserve. Right. But, you know, I feel like a part of the history of those doors is them being used. I agree. And yes. the looking to see that that they were touched by human hands at one point. It stops feeling so static. You suddenly feel the life and the culture that was yeah. you know, surrounding these things. It's uh it, it's it it does kind of highlight even though Italians have a very compared to the rest of Europe, Italians were kind of at the forefront of a lot of um restoration things. You know, they use the method For of sure. restraro where they want to preserve the history of an object. They don't want to refurbish it the way that, you know, if this is we're talking like you know a hundred years ago or something. But if an artifact <laughs> came into say British hands to go into a museum, they would restore it in a way to make it look brand new. Whereas the Italians yes. would restore it to keep the history of it being broken or handled or whatever before they put right. it in the museum. But still, there's the the interest in preserving the original material, whereas. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go across the world to Japan, they do not have they, they do not always have that same um, uh, reverence for it being original, you know, where right. they will might rebuild a temple exactly the same way using traditional methods. And because it has been on the same site and it is built the same way, it can still be considered the original structure. Mm, sort of the. Uh the new bike kind of conundrum where if you keep replacing parts on a bike, is it just a new bike or is it the same bike? I mean, that's my question with Herbie. Oh God. Herbie fully loaded. <laughs> I mean, if you replace lightning McQueen's engine is, is that his brain or is that his heart? Probably. But, but you know, you're, heart. you're not a new person if you get a heart transplant. Or are you? No, you're not. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I God, that I've had a, I had a debate on that in philosophy class in undergrad and it was just such a mess of this like because <laughs> the guy was like a biker that's right he, he was like a bicyclist and that's what he did and really enjoyed and he was like you know if i replace all these parts on my bike is it the same bike that i bought or is it a different bike and you're like i don't know um i guess it's the same bike because it's your bike you know yeah but i mean it I, really yeah. is a complicated question and, and i think it comes up in this yeah. in this case a lot mm -hmm. because you know, I think I think to rebuild the temple where it is and you know how it is and to kind of keep reconstructing this is still then the act of reconstructing something. Right. Preserving the memory, if right. you will. Whereas with, you know, Ghiberti's doors, it's kind of like we need to save it. Yeah. But by doing so, we isolate it. Yes. We put it behind glass for you to pay yeah. to go see. And granted, you know, you're paying for the city and for yeah. things to be restored and whatnot. And I understand the terms of you know, yeah. how public funds but, but you, you could you could say the same thing about national parks in the United States. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Where, you know, we have closed off areas with the good intention of keeping them from being developed. But yeah, in, for sure. In doing so, we have inadvertently, you know, uh, removed those places from the hands of mm -hmm. Native Americans. And yes. we also <laughs> often disrupt a lot of the natural processes going on there to make it, you know, easier for us to, you know, use for, you know, essentially our own leisure and, uh, yeah. and vacation. Exactly. 
yeah, it it's kind of I think the same idea as the amusement park. Mm-hmm. You know, you're still you're still you're marketing something in order to preserve it, but you're destroying it at the same time. Where yeah. it should just be sectioned off to be left alone. But mm. I, I guess it comes down to a matter of opinions and, and how to do that. But I think it's an interesting point in terms of this. Bringing up the, the national parks, I think it's an interesting look in, um, like, for instance, I didn't know in New York, mm-hmm. you're not allowed to grow food in public spaces, like specifically public parks. Hmm. That's illegal. Wow. So that's interesting. And I didn't yeah. know that. And, there, and I know that because there's an artist, um, Mary Mattingly, who's an American artist working in, in New York and mm-hmm. with that kind of problem. And, and she created this interactive kind of installation but really it's a um i guess it's almost like a a place literally like creating this creating an installation that functions as something else and the project's called swale and what it is basically is this floating food barge Mm -hmm. so it's a massive boat i guess it's not that big it's pretty like an average sized boat let's say that's floating in (laughs) a pretty big boat yeah, it's a pretty big boat. You know, it's not Boaty yeah. McBoatface, but it's a pretty big boat. Yeah. Basically, it's this, large, it's this large barge that's kind of hanging around New York City. And I think it was originally placed near the Bronx because mm. it's like it was one of these areas is the largest food desert in New York City because everything outside of Manhattan has to kind of deal with what it has. And groceries are super expensive and you mm-hmm. can't plant, you know, gardens in public spaces. Mm-hmm. And this is technically like an, you know, this is an urban area, so it doesn't mean you have a lot of land to begin with. Right. And so, you know, the idea from the project, and I know it's a collaborative project with her and a few of the locals and other people, is to have this floating space that's kind of just, you know, not really using any gas or anything else. It's just kind of floating along and it's docked when needed. And it's just a garden that's on this boat and it's totally renewable. And people are invited to kind of come on and participate and grow different crops and plants and different things and learn about them as well and how to kind of care for that. So really interacting with the community in a way that both provides something, provides knowledge, nourishment, Mm -hmm. um, you know, something to do quite literally. And that's productive and that's, I think, healthy. Yeah, I guess that, that, I mean, that's, that's so interesting and like, yeah, and it, it definitely, you know, makes you think about land use it's definitely reminiscent yeah. of i think what the aztecs did in uh, yes, uh yes. Talon, right yeah 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 exactly where they would have the um pylons in the ground or in the in the lake on yeah um, the, the the float the floating gardens which i think yeah. is still practiced in um some parts of mexico by uh yeah. by the descendants of uh those indigenous populations which is i think so i mean it does definitely raise the question of who does who should public art serve? Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. You know, because people can invest, you know, money in this stuff. And like, you know, you, you look at, you know, if you look at like murals, like Diego Rivera's murals, uh, mm-hmm. you know, those are incredibly famous and, you know, are, you can find them in Mexico and the United States. And they they clearly have you know um, a monetary value and uh, a, a cultural historic value, uh, but then there is a question of you know the the politics of them, which is you know pretty far yeah. you know but you know basically advocating uh, you know workers' rights, um, unionizing uh, communist ideals. 
mm-hmm. which you know some people some some institutions might hesitate on advocating right you know depending on what their what their own <laughs> politics are um sure but you know you you can't deny that they're valuable but you have to ask are, who are they valuable to are they exactly. in places that are going to encourage people to you know push for you know workers rights over the factory owners rights you know are they mm, yeah you know where where are you putting these um things you know and in you know yeah. uh in Rivera's case you know he's you know he's putting them throughout Mexico he's putting them in Detroit um you know th- that's clearly a, a deliberate move in, in that sense but then I mean then look at by contrast look at Thomas Hart Benton you know the the American mm. uh, regionalist painter. You know, and he had a lot of work. Just kind of, I I think kind of interestingly. I I, I think they they kind of had similar like very sculptural looking painting style when they did murals. Like their murals mm-hmm. very much feel like public art because their figures look like statues. You know, their right. their figures look carved and. In his murals, you know, he wants to reference all kinds of history, you know, going on in the South. And in, you know, one case, he has a painting that has some Klansmen in it as sort of a reference to, um, you know, this, uh, this kind of scandal with the KKK that was uncovered. And it was kind of a win for, you know, journalism. But, you know, this KKK plot was, you know, thwarted. Uh-huh. But then without that context, now you have this mural that has, you know, they're kind of off in the background, but still you, you have a mural with KKK figures in it in a college. Yeah. And, you know, now we're sort of running into the issue of when you have figurative sculpture or figurative art in general in the public arena what do you do is it better to just always keep it abstract so that anybody can see the just the ideals or the ideas that are in that art or you know do do you always have to have a disclaimer that we're we're trying to think bigger than the people that are in the monument or in the public artwork like the lincoln memorial Mm -hmm. is you know and it has come under scrutiny because of who lincoln was and you know he was he was a complicated person and a person of his time and we should not overlook the the bad things that he did but that memorial to me at least has always felt like bigger than lincoln himself it is quite literally bigger than lincoln it addresses his conflictedness it is the ideal of uniting people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that monument is effective whether you agree with its politics or not. It is an effective sure. monument that, like, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to stand here and pretend like Lincoln was a perfect person, but, like, in Handmaid's Tale, there's a scene where... Um, the main character goes to Washington, D.C. after, you know, the, like, religious fanatics have taken over America. Mm. Um, Right, right. And they blew up Lincoln. 
Oh, wow. In his chair. And there's just this moment where she's standing there looking in on the memorial in that empty chair. And you just have this sinking feeling. Like, I didn't even know that I felt that strongly about the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah. But the absence of that idea was scary. Mm -hmm. That there's not even something, that there is not something advocating for the idea of democracy and the idea of unity. Mm-hmm. that that is just absent from the world it is scary it it was it was a genuinely and in a in a tv show filled with horrifying imagery <laughs> yeah i was going to say like that was ugh. that was that was a haunting moment where you feel this is this is how we create fascism by mm-hmm. obliterating any reference to to an idea or to um to history you know yeah it's the iconoclasm Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i mean this brings it i think a kind of full circle to what we were talking about earlier and i mean it's it's again it's complicated in ways i think beyond even just agreeing that things could stand for something that's bad or good right yeah but i think in my opinion, this is where the literalness of art mm-hmm. kind of bites itself. Right. Yeah. Where, you know, speaking of the the um the mural paintings and the and the paintings you were discussing and how literal it is, you know, representing KKA members, if you have to explain something to somebody else mm-hmm. in the public sphere, it's not working. Mm. And what I mean by that is like if I have to sit there or the artist has to sit there and explain every detail in the mural and why it's there and why it's important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we need kind of a content warning because before even showing it to give this context. Yeah. I don't think it's working That's fair. in the way that it needs to be. That's, That's fair. something where in the gallery space, in the mm. exhibit space, it is because the context can be there. But I guess my question is, does this mean that we just from now on avoid figurative monumental sculpture? Because... Clearly, yeah. If if we're thinking of recent uh, public art that has is very effective in Washington, you know, I think the uh, you know like the Vietnam Memorial, yes, yeah, is very effective. I agree. Yeah, uh, but is. you know, it is a flat wall with names inscribed in it, but it gets across everything yeah. it needs to without literally saying it. It is showing the needless waste of life 100 percent. but then you know in in sort of our effort to correct history in our own revision where we want to see where, where there's an effort now to see um you know non-white figures in figurative art you know you have someone mm-hmm. like um michael armitage you know trying to insert black bodies very deliberately into the European painting tradition. But then if you yeah. go to, you know, Washington, D.C., you have the MLK, the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, and yeah. it is pretty heavily criticized. I mean, it's not great, no, to be honest. It's not, <laughs> it's not great. It's not everyone deserved better than they got. <laughs> <laughs> in that yeah. case which you know yeah, maybe literally. maybe you know says something you know you could say well no artwork is perfect 
and and you want to see the figure of of black people in the United States not in a role of you know being subjects, right? We've got yeah. plenty of neoclassical paintings of <laughs> you know black people as slaves. We have you know a uh, sculpture of black people as slaves. We you know there was a there was I think a feeling that let's show um a, a citizen worthy of of our ideals and it falls yeah and it falls on its face as as a monument and as as a as a memory to mlk yeah i mean it doesn't help that you know you kind of get a it almost like factory made in trying to yeah disguise just, it just the as, way it was made yeah, I mean, because it's it's exported to China and made there, and by I I, I mean I believe it's made by artisans, but yes. still it's it's industrial. It's not hand yeah. carved. It's not. There's no real personality to it. It's a product. Yeah, and it's done in a way to match the other monuments, color wise, form wise. Yeah. It has to blend into a landscape. It it doesn't even want. They don't even want it to stand out. Yeah. So the intent behind it is already kind of just because the Washington not the Washington there. monument isn't figurative. No, but it's stolen. <laughs> you know, it's still it's still something else put in a different context representing something. But yes, I mean, I guess you could argue it works. Yes. But I mean, I, I'm still going to criticize. Oh, it. yeah. But, no, you know, I mean, it, it, it is. It, it is worthy of our criticism. I mean, the Lincoln sure. Memorial itself is a hodgepodge of Hellenistic uh, symbology. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, you absolutely. know, it's like a lot of early American monument and architecture it kind of wants to have everything at once. It wants it to look like yes. a Greek temple, but it does things that a Greek temple would never do. Exactly. I exactly, mean, exactly. If, if you want to talk about, you know, trying to industrially replicate something from another era, I mean, I think we kind of have to talk about um, the Parthenon. Oh, you mean like the one in Greece? No. Oh. The other one. The other? Like in Vegas? <laughs> what do you mean? No. <laughs> the one in what other one? good old Nashville, Tennessee. <gasps> oh, God, yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> um, oh. For those of you that don't know, uh, there is a concrete rep- uh, scale replica of the Greek oh. Parthenon in uh, Nashville. Tennessee oh God. for some reason. Like I just if, like here's the uh, you were gonna rebuild the Parthenon and you weren't even gonna put it in Athens, Georgia. You're gonna put it in Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, at least acknowledge the context yeah. and the funniness to that. I mean it's just funny Jesus. to me because like I, I I I have a story about this. Like I was um doing this road trip uh to Nashville for New Year's this is uh years ago with uh, some of my friends one of one of whom I I live with this person now um she is Greek and we were driving to into Nashville and we were like oh do you guys want to see the Parthenon and she refused to see it on <laughs> principle <laughs> I mean I don't blame her on principle of being Greek I mean I told I told one of our professors about this, that professor being Sicilian. Mm. And like, I don't know how else to describe it other than like 
the look of disgust on her face like oh it was like it was she was she does that thing with her lower lip that kind of looks like a grouper this (laughs) this type of frown that she just she just looked so disgusted by the idea just as 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 someone with mediterranean heritage just the idea of a concrete scale replica of the parthenon oh god talk about industrialization of art yeah, or industrializing but art. then you have to ask yourself, who is this public art for? Because it certainly says something. Oh, it does. It says I, something. I'm going to make an assumption. Okay, without ready. being there, ready, without ready ever for, seeing for this. this hot assumption. <laughs> I'm going to go off on a limb here and assume that it has to do with this imposing democracy and where it comes from you know from the greek lineage and this philosophy and this kind of idea that our country is built off of and so they have to literally bring one of the artifacts to the united states to tennessee but you can't afford marble mm-hmm. so they have to make it out of concrete because it's cheaper i wouldn't it's i wouldn't say always stable. that americans yes yes but no Americans probably could have afforded it, but it would, but it was still cheaper. So they did the cheaper thing. I mean, yeah, I I am. I'm doing this off of, I'm assuming the budget. No, the budget probably did not allow for them to rebuild this out of marble. Um, I mean, it's also just not practical. No, it's not. It's not practical. (laughs) It's it's really much. Hey, if it wasn't practical, why do it? You know, exactly. So, cause like, I mean, because this this is the thing with a lot of American uh, architecture is, you know, a lot of the historic homes and everything were built of wood. Yes. Because that was, you know, the Europeans coming into America were astounded and, you know, took advantage and exploited the all the hardwood trees that grow here when Europe yeah. had been pretty heavily deforested at that point. So, yep. you know, um, wood was so readily available. There was no reason to build stone buildings the way they had been in Europe, you know? Exactly. Which is to a disadvantage and an advantage. It's a trade-off like anything else, you know? Sure. Because of this... America was able to, you know, modernize so quickly because we didn't build everything in one place and then you can't move it, you know? If you've been to an old, a very old, you know, part of Europe or something, you know, you know that the the streets are just a spaghetti web of, (laughs) you know, different directions because they're all made of stone buildings that you can't really move. Exactly. Um, And then, you know, being everything being made of wood you know, you can turn around, move everything, straighten out the streets, and then you have the grid of Manhattan, you know? Exactly. You can exactly. have the planned, the very French plan of uh, Washington, D.C., Boston, where I currently am, they said fuck it and kept the, uh, <laughs> kept the original <laughs> spaghetti web. Um, yeah, and then built around it as in a grid. Yeah, yeah, no, the driving here is a mess. I hate it so oh, much. God, it yeah. stresses me out so much to drive oh, here. Oh, God. But, you know, brick and lumber being, you know, yeah. brick and lumber mean something different because it, it speaks to 
you know, I think our Lego type mindset <laughs> of how we build yeah. things. But you you don't have to immediately approach that as a wholly bad thing. No. Because that's yeah, just no. culturally, you know, an American interest in um, you know, an un not always healthy interest, but mm -hmm. an mm -hmm. interest in improving and innovating. Um, but you realize, you know, in, in an interesting, profound way that the foundation is not has not been fully thought out. No. You know, just and... just just the way the way that we often build things where, you know, they they somewhat almost like don't the reach and the the ability, you know, are sometimes beyond what we probably should be doing. Yeah. You know, that is that is that is quite American. It's very short sighted. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, people people have even, you know, talked about like like with the twin towers, like that they were not constructed properly. Mm. You know? That yeah, yeah. there were all of these buildings that, you know, had disasters. Some of them, you know, even the uh, the building that Timothy McVeigh blew up in uh, Oklahoma City, mm -hmm. you know, another act of terrorism, like it shouldn't have killed that many people, but huh. they didn't build that government building correctly. They cheaped mm. out. Yeah, they cheaped out. They had the ability to um, they saved like, you know, a couple tens of thousands of dollars and, you know, so many people died. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think that's kind of what it comes down to when discussing materiality because a lot of this topic was about that and is about that yeah where you know if you're gonna do something the material matters yeah. whether it be a monument that's literal or or kind of abstract and yeah. if it's made out of you know <laughs> concrete or marble right yeah. or if it's ephemeral and it's made out of the uh, out of clay the mud you know the earth i, I think yeah one thing, one thing to kind of leave everybody with here is there's a um, there's an artist that I, I think we met Suzanne. I, I think you were there. Um, her name's Stefania Galagati. She's a, a Sicilian artist who works in you know a variety of different mediums, and she's worked with monuments and such. But there's one project she's working on currently um, that's a definitely a huge collaborative project in which it's it it stands from this idea of how of buying an island mm -hmm. and specifically this island off of the coast of i think it's it's near palermo but i'm not entirely sure um but it's this really really small island and there used to be kind of like a roman or a greek greek or greco roman let's say temple on there <laughs> dedicated to yeah dedicated to it's um, like it's like when you, you know that's <laughs> that's such an uh, such a useful phrase cuz it's like it's like when you can't quite remember uh, what yeah. uh, what part of the Bible something is from, so you can just say <laughs> it's Judeo-Christian. Yes, yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But so it's it yeah, it's Greco-Roman, and it was uh, dedicated to women. And so I think some millionaire bought it a while back and was trying to like terraform it to create something. But this island is very tiny, so it was kind of impossible. And so they're now selling it for I think it was like a million euros. And so the idea stems from gathering up women from all over and asking to just donate like 10 euros to this project, 10 euros to buy this island for everybody or for specifically 
for all women and mm-hmm. making it a living monument for all women where mm-hmm. it's an island dedicated to women everywhere. And mm-hmm. I think there's something very interesting in that. Well, all, all, of, all of her work is such interesting plays on monument because oh, yeah. she embraces the failure. Yes. Of yeah. Like, if, if you do, I, I do also recommend her work as it was it was a wonderful talk. But yeah, no, she also uh, her, her work definitely deals with the failure of monuments. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It opens up a very interesting point and question on monuments and how they should be built and also how art in the public sphere functions. And I think mm-hmm. from everything we've been kind of talking about there really is a contrast between things that are ephemeral and for everybody and kind of available to walk in and accidentally see a blue whale in the forest, right? Right. Or fossils made out of clay, just kind of left there and not one, and wondering what it is and if it's even real versus, versus something that's manufactured. Yeah. And I think the potential for monuments and why we are let down by them, um, you know, I think we should still look for what the opportunity is, how they can still serve us in the future, because public art is there for all of us. And mm-hmm. it should be, when, when, it, when it limits itself, when it says, this is the ideal, and it does, and it does not acknowledge anywhere else to go, it is yeah. the ceiling. I think effective monuments if monuments are going to continue to be a thing in the future, if public art is going to continue to be a thing in the future, it cannot present itself as the ceiling. It has to be the jumping off point to where you see it and you think about who you are and where you are in the world. Where do you belong in this world where this thing has been deemed worthy of public exhibition? Yeah. And what what your part is in it. It should be a jumping off point, not the ultimate. Exactly. Something kind of like the like the inspired installation here mm-hmm. from Roman on deck where you you go through, you take the thing that's outside and bring it into this, you know, closed container. Yeah. But by doing so, open up a conversation on even noticing right. what was outside. I mean where Yeah. Yeah, just kind of paying attention to everything around oneself and Mm -hmm. i think taking that in instead of passing right through there was the um sephardic medieval philosopher uh maimonides um who asked a lot of the questions of you know sort of you know medieval theology of thoughts versus actions you know he uh he wrote a lot about, you know, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And, you know, basically, once that was gone, Jews no longer sacrificed animals at religious services, right? You know? Right. Um, and that we serve God by our thoughts, not by our actions from then on. And one of the questions he sort of was immediately faced with was, well, then why did God tell us to sacrifice animals at the temple at the first place? Why, <laughs> why was any of that needed? And yeah, true. his logic to it was that after the flight from Egypt, um, that um, Jews 
needed a transition uh, going from, you know, uh, a some sort of ancient pagan religion to move into a more modern religion. Because to him mm. and a lot of his contemporary people in the Middle Ages, you know, the, the thought of sacrificing animals was, you know, it seemed kind of gross and right. unnecessary. And yet everyone was praying for the temple to be rebuilt, right? Mm. And true, by, true. by that logic, it means you are also praying for a return of animal sacrifice. Maimonides sort of proposed that it was meant as, as a transition where God knew that the Jews were not ready to totally accept this new type of moral religion mm. that we needed to transition. And, you know, you could make a million arguments that this is basically retconning the Bible to kind of fit <laughs> his, to fit his what were his contemporary views and a lot of other people's contemporary views. But I think there is something worthwhile to look into um, looking at the past and seeing what we had to learn to get to where we are now. Because I don't think we should ever look at ourselves as fully enlightened by virtue of having been born in this time period. It's Right. You know, if you put up a monument, if you put up artwork, if you put up something, if you do something with lasting effect, it's going and it's going to outlive you. We have to be ready to talk as a society about where we go, about what how yeah. do we change in relationship to this constant. Yeah. And and just and just be ready for be ready for those changes and embrace those changes. Embrace the fact that society will continue to change and hopefully continue to improve. Yeah, that's, I think you summed it up right there. That's exactly it. Well, Maimonides, you know, he, he did a lot of the heavy lifting in the, you know, 12th century for me, but. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're really just piggybacking off him, but I think it's still important. You know what, everybody's, yeah, everybody's piggybacking off of Maimonides. He's, uh, you know, it's like every, every guitar player piggybacks off of, you know, <laughs> Chuck Berry. Very true, you know, just laying. <laughs> They they walked so we could run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, I think that that kind of brings our our tour to a close here, and I think we can exit through this other side of the the loop, if we will. Is Thank this, you all so is this much exit for... sign public art, or is this the exit sign? This is the exit sign. Oh. I think we legally have to have that there. Oh, um, oh, yeah. Okay. But, well, I guess you could put legal. an exit sign in, in a forest well, and see legally, what happens. I've been Zan Peters. And I've been Joe Semino. Thank you so much for coming to visit us today at the Uncanny County Museum. Bye. Bye.